Do you real? I can't, we are almost to our goal. Can you believe it? This is like so intense and amazing. We may, it's like, thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all. Oh, did we mention we've had a Kickstarter starting? So we launched officially on Monday, although we had a little pre-launch set up after I emailed all of our very special uh, Dragon Common Room supporters. And we had a, a little, you know, Sunday special where everybody got to sneak peek in and, and, and get in there. But, you know, our big public launch was on Monday and you guys are amazing. Thank you so, so, so much for your support for our poetry, your support for our art and for joining us in this art war. We obviously want to talk to you about the Kickstarter and what we're doing and why we're doing it. Why poetry? Um, why dragons? Why we are going to convince you tonight to go out and convince all of your friends that we need more poetry about dragons. Welcome to the Mosaic Arc. Can you believe how well we're doing? Isn't it amazing? I just, I'm <laughs> over the moon, obviously. This is, this is you guys. Thank you so much for your support. And those of you who have not yet supported, we know you will, because this is a really great project. And mm -hmm. I, I was, I realized, of course, that this is basically why we started the Mosaic Arc, to be able to do this episode where we tell you why we're doing it. <laughs> right. yeah. No, because I, so I, I that, Art is like condensed and diamond-like and gem-like and everything sort of folded in on itself. And then it takes centuries of explication to figure out what it is that the art went into the art. <laughs> it's like we make this diamond and then we have to unpack it all for you. And Kilt and I really started the our journey with you last summer talking about Aurora Borealis and the In the Darkest Earth, the Great Light Glows and realizing that if we embed things into a story in the way that we are with Aurora Borealis and Draco Alchemicus. The whole point is that it takes unlocking and layers of revelation and such. It's not, 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 not because we hope that you feel, well, I mean, we do hope you feel like you're being introduced to new mysteries and such, but not because they're, they're hidden, but because they're manifest and we haven't been able to see them and that we're, we're working in this revelation. So we're happy to be thinking about this with you tonight. Yeah, it's uh, it's like going on a treasure hunt. Um, the the feeling that we want for everyone to be able to read the stories and feel like they're on a treasure hunt and they're finding things, uh, 
and to make it interesting so that you know any anybody that picks up the books will be able to find things that are personal to them and also things that they can talk about with other people that are reading them it's like lots of lots of things in the pirate's cave to to go through yeah we're we're very excited. Yeah. I'm very excited. She's so excited she can't speak yet. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna have to drag her, drag, drag yeah. this out. No, no, <laughs> no. The thing is, that we we because like there's a huge surge and and has been for some years now, but we we can feel it building. But okay, so back up a little bit. When you're working on a piece of art mm -hmm. and you're noticing things, you're attending to patterns and images and stories and and things like that. Suddenly, everything in the world is talking to you, and it's a little bit like the way C.S. Lewis talks about the music of the spheres. It's like we that the music of the planets is around us all the time, but we can't hear it because it's around us all the time. So um, that being the premise of his out of the silent planet, that when his character goes out beyond the influence of Earth, suddenly he can hear this music that's there all the time. And our role as artists is to try to hear to try to listen and it, it's not that the things weren't there or that i mean or that we're magicking things into being right we don't think that we're not we're not creating out of nothing we are drawing your attention to things that you knew all along but now hopefully can can see that you hadn't seen before mm -hmm. and and that that therefore hopefully it feels like you know if you go on an easter egg current or something you find the easter eggs you're delighted because you found them, but you know what they are when you find them. So mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to give you all that that sensation of seeing the mysteries that you knew you were inside of already, but can now appreciate more fully. Mm. Yeah, it's like a guide map to a city that everybody's grown up in and you're so used to hearing traffic, roaring traffic noises that you don't sort of tune into the symphony of the experience of being in the place um and yeah i think that's what we're doing i mean like we have this we have this very strange process as a writing team where i suppose it's that we're paying attention to particular things but we wanted to look at at, at the the theme of our civilization that feels now very very chaotic and that begin altogether to find the patterns in it that are actually uh guiding you know the rhythm of uh, of our life in this particular civilization mm -hmm. so um I, I don't know it's kind of like a, a it's it's like hearing music and uh, doing <laughs> doing sketches at the same time when we're writing this poem mm. yeah you we're kind of making sound uh, word songs out of the of the noise of the everyday um yeah yeah but what what know. we want we want everybody to appreciate is that we're not so we're we the kickstarter is obviously trying to make it all a little mysterious and such because if you're going into mm -hmm. a story you want to say okay there's there's uh i mean there's a pleasure in in learning the the riddles right and saying it's like here here's a puzzle yeah. and i for one i mean 
back when I read a lot of novels, I, I read, um, on the one hand, mystery novels, and on the other one, historical novels. And historical novels are, are interesting because, of course, the whole idea is that you already know what happened. <laughs> and the mm -hmm. challenge for the novelist is to make you feel like you understand that event or situation better than you had previously. With a mystery novel, mm -hmm. there's no mystery. It's like there's a dead body at the beginning. Right? <laughs> or, you know, okay. there's a sort of set up tension dead body and then you have to solve what it is. And the challenge for the, the mystery writer is to give you as reader enough hints along the way so that when the solution to the murder is, is given you, you feel satisfied because there've been, you know, clues along the way that you may or may not have recognized as the thing pointing to the, the, um, uh, culprit, <laughs> that's not the right word, uh, murder, uh, but it, you know, the, the, you're pointing to the perpetrator, but you are satisfied as a reader if all of those pieces come together and you say, aha, okay, it's meaningful, mm -hmm. right? And this, this being, yes. I, so it's been a, it's been a wild week, right? Getting our Kickstarter launched. And <laughs> there's also my other, my other video life, um, Patrick Coffin um, has a new uh, course up on, uh, he's co-sponsoring co with a, a new partner. Um, Ryan, who I'm sorry, I've forgotten your last name, Moreau, I believe, um, that they're doing Hope is Fuel. Uh, that that one was launching this past week. Uh, we had our big symposium on Friday on the University of Chicago campus talking about the failure of academia to talk about the stuff in the lockdowns and the mandates, yeah. the thing. The, the, and, and of course, all of this for us mm -hmm. is going into, and Draco Chemicus is in Dragon Common Room, it's all going into Draco Chemicus because you're saying these are all pieces of this pattern, the way people behave around religion, the way people behave around medicine. The Draco of yes. our story is the alchemical dragon of both, you know, medicine, science, and spirituality, religiosity, mythology. Um, that being said, now I forgot what I was saying, but yeah, <laughs> that, oh, and I was also wrapping up my, my course on Tolkien on campus. And the thing about Tolkien um, is that he is trying to show you this creative process. He's trying to show you what it's like being um, sub-creators, making, making stories. But mm -hmm. the satisfaction, and this is where I was getting to, the satisfaction of this, the, the reading that you get is, you find yourself in the story too. That's why everybody wants to be hobbits. They sometimes want to be elves, but they mainly want mm -hmm. to be hobbits because the hobbits are the ones that frame the story for us that make it possible for us to see it as part of our story. And saying that mm -hmm. this is what we're trying to do with Draco Alchemicus. There's a mystery in it, obviously, but our, our hope is that what we've done is tell you a story you actually already know, but you don't necessarily realize you know and that our story will help you point to things in your own life that you recognize as part of that story as well. So it's 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 mm. it's the one story. It's there's only one story, <laughs> but there is this sense of can we can we um, feel it? Can we feel ourselves within the patterns of the the revelation? If that's not mysterious, we don't know what is, because we really don't want to just tell you what we wrote, right? We really like you to have the pleasure yeah. of finding yourself in this mystery and then working through it, right? Because that's why we like stories, not just mm -hmm. here's the answer. It's it's not catechism, right? It's like the answer is, and now you repeat it back. No, no, no. We're saying 
you get inside the story and it teaches mm -hmm. you to see yourself in these patterns. Yes. Um, uh, I'm thinking the the equivalent would be when we we are read to as children and we're reading nursery rhymes or we're, we're reading the old folk tales, the old fairy tales. And everybody knows them because they're they're the familiar like uh, patterns of you know oh I want to hear a story what kind of story are we going to hear okay well we'll hear these ones because these are their familiar folk tales they're they're all uh, retold and retold over and over and over again because uh, people find value in them even though they don't necessarily have to be magical or um, uh, you know they're not. Uh, creating things that don't exist they're using things that exist and and kind of re not remixing but you know showing the the different sides to to the human experience in this in, in this little folktale uh to hit on something very primal in 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 the human life and human experience um you know like a Hansel and Gretel getting led into the the dark forest by their you know starving father and and you know these kinds of things where uh, the forest itself becomes magical. It's not like the the, the story is is uh, holding some deep symbolism that only the storyteller knows and can hide from everybody and keep it from everybody. It's a, the revelation of the experience of something like. A, uh what what it means to be uh in the forest you know and battling uh, battling your own uh your own circumstances your own poverty and then finding yourself in you know this gingerbread house which could be anything for anybody you know that's like that's kind of what i really like about those those old stories mm -hmm. is that the there is no right answer that you have to be initiated into in order to know what the gingerbread house is. That gingerbread house is going to be something for everybody that hears the tale. So I think that's what we're doing. We're, um, we're allowing people to have their own experience in what we're creating because that's what every human life is in the big story. As you were saying, there is only one story and we all have our own journey through the woods so to mm. speak but then it's a part of something bigger as well so we're showing both at the same time uh no initiation it's it's more of a playful playful revelation of what it means to be human yeah well so this is we were talking about this today that there's difference between stories that are occult that promise you yes. secret knowledge that mm -hmm. give you powers Right. And, and, yes. and that, that yeah. is, I mean, so to say, you know, so we're writing a, we say it's an electric fairy tale. We, we, we scared it around a lot of different genre labels for what we're doing. Cause we're saying, <laughs> what is it exactly? And I say it's, it's, it's a fairy tale is the closest because we're, we're working within Tolkien's definition of fairy tale that you want to have this secondary mm -hmm. reality that the story takes you into and that there is some kind of framework of the story that that puts you into fairyland which um is 
fairyland having its own rules and its own challenges and and in its own reality um is 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 necessary um, but we said it's electric because we're thinking about it in terms of the media experiences that we've been talking through with our mosaic and our internet and yeah. and our sense of the storytelling we're doing is obviously taking place in this media environment so our electric fairy tale um but that it's it's different from it there there there's occult genres of I, how do you say it like demonology and stuff stories i don't know that mm -hmm. that are the promise to the characters is always you find this book um i'm thinking of deborah hartness's witches series right because she's modeling those off of john d's angel conversations that We've definitely read about so that we have that in the background of our thinking of, okay, so what kind of like mystical knowledge are, are we expecting people to feel like they're getting? But in Harkness's story, she has her main character find a manuscript that has secret information that gives you workings and powers, right? Our story won't do that for you. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to get secret powers out of reading Draco Alchemicus. We are actually showing you the danger mm -hmm of wanting secret powers by way of alchemy and science and other mm -hmm. operations that you might guess. And of course our dragon, our Draco Alchemicus is definitely meant to suggest that, that kind of problem. But the, our story itself mm -hmm. is not intended to give you that kind of occult wisdom because that kind of occult wisdom is the whole point of the seduction that we want to show people don't get, don't get caught up in. Um, so that that's initiation mm -hmm. right into an occult story. Whereas, if we're yes. reading the scriptures, to say what Tolkien says about the Gospels is that they are a fairy story, right? They're the, the fairy story where legend and history has met and fused, that art and and the the reality have have you know been realized. Realized again that 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 mm -hmm. in the incarnation the Creator enters into the story, and that is the the, the story that we m most want to believe in terms of the. Um, transition from primary reality to secondary reality, except where we recognize that we are actually in secondary reality, which is the primary reality of whatever, right? The gospel that, that in that kind of experience, it's the one that the hobbits have in the story when they see themselves in the grand story of the Silmarils because of the light of Arendel, the star. And then once they recognize themselves in the grand story of the Silmarils, they recognize themselves in the grand story of creation, which the Anilinda play tells of the music and that kind of sort of shimmering echo of we're in the same tale still mm -hmm. is an entirely different kind of experience from saying oh yes now i have occult knowledge mm -hmm. and i can control because of course that's what the ring promises yes. and we don't do that yeah, <laughs> yeah <there's... laughs> no um yeah there's no control over matter you know that uh that other stories would uh promise uh the ability to override the the the, the laws of nature and uh you know what is it second secondary causality mm. you know the thing this the, the the laws that the creator has put into effect in his artwork uh that uh, people are thirsty to override um, through their 
through their secrets and secret teachings, which are really secret stories that people are not allowed to hear. Um, these things are not what Draco Alchemicus is giving. Uh, it's a, it's a, I would say it's a kind of warning against wanting mm -hmm. it, but, um, it's probably more than a warning. What we're doing is, I think highlighting that this practice is now much more common than people are willing to see. They've become so accustomed to initiation rituals mm. as the way of accessing um, mysticism and the mystical that they're, uh, the culture is sort of desensitized to initiation uh and and secrecy as a as a way to gain power mm. um people don't think like hobbits anymore uh they you know it, it's like we've been <laughs> the culture's been It's been influenced by ring bearers instead of hobbits for a very long time. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, unfortunately, it's like it, we, we could do better comparisons on this if I could think of like modern stories that I watch on television, but I won't watch them because they're so dark. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you, you, the protagonist in most sort of horror fantasy uh or sci-fi are the only one in possession of whatever knowledge it is that's going to either wreck the wreck the wreck the system or liberate you from the system and that mm -hmm. that as we're saying in in the christian tradition is a very great temptation of of gnosticism you know, the, i i for yes. you know the entire time i've been working on study of scripture and history of Christianity and such. There's always someone that comes up and says, you know, do you know about the Gnostics? And you're like, yeah, we, you, you learn about those in college because everybody reads them and they're like three texts. Um, <laughs> and they die out in orthodoxy because they are promising something that is, you know, that gnosis, that, that hidden wisdom that Jesus communicates only to the select few. And, that mm. that kind of promise is one anti-incarnational because usually the Gnostic Jesus is not in fact incarnate. There's ways in which he's apparent, you know, there's an appearance of incarnation or something like that. But that mm. the, the idea being that we are trapped in our incarnation and the Gnosis is the liberation, right? So it's, it's, it's anti material, but it's 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 sort of anti-human in in the sense. I mean, you could say a lot of the things that we were battling right now with the sort of ideas of not so much AI, but the if I could translate my my consciousness into some kind of other. I mean, it's always has to be some mm -hmm. other carrier because we can't. I mean, we do actually have souls and they're immortal, and so you don't need you know the other carrier is yourself but that we're going to translate ourselves into some kind of other machine-like thing and be immortal well that's all a gnostic kind of imagining that that will we'll escape from this polluting physicality that we participate in whereas of course orthodox christianity mm -hmm. is one it's it's spoken plainly in the world although there are ways in which jesus says that you know i spoke to the 
the apostles privately, but then they wrote it down in the gospel. So they're, they're there for everybody. And um, that this knowledge is meant to, I mean, I, I in the one hand, show us who we truly are, but also liberate us from that secret, that secret stuff. That, that premise of secrecy that only the select few can have it. Um, Sorry, one second. Wait, is the, is, is the real world intruding into your, into your audio space? Oh, yes. Okay. The incarnational the world, incarnational world it is, 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 is invading my digital experience. <laughs> so we have Casey's talking about sketching a portrait with words. Yes. In our, in our point. So Casey and Mel, you guys, you can help, you can help us talk about what we're forgetting to say. People are numb to the dangers of a degenerated culture. Yes, absolutely. So. Hold on. I have to, I'm going to run and come okay. back. I will go back to myself. Okay, so she has the inter the internet does not possess her entirely. It does possess us. I will say that thanks to thanks to my begging, pleading, and and having met um, uh, in person at BaseCon last year, um, the Dark Herald has given us a very beautiful write up for our our why we need the poetry that we need. And I encourage you all to go visit his account on Archaven. But it, it's 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 just too much. It's 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 beautiful saying. Um, American poetry. There was a time, believe it or not, that it was central to American life. People would attend, in fact, pay good money for professional readings. It's like we need we need to have a we need to have a professional reading of our Drake Alchemicus, which we do have volunteer. One of our former poets in um, Centrism Games is is interested in. I'll bring you back into the camera here. She's back. She's back. Okay, I, hey. I I'm telling them about Dark Herald's <laughs> wonderful piece on saying why we why we need this, right? So we we've, we've been talking about oh yeah, talking yeah. about why we need the kind of story that we're we're des we're describing, which is revelatory and pattern making, and you should feel yourself and find yourself in it. Um, but that we're writing it, of course, in in verse, and that matters as well. And and we want to convince you all that it's accessible in ways you didn't appreciate maybe <laughs> right that 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 yeah. saying you know we're doing it in spencerian stanzas and it rhymes and, and things like that well one that's been incredibly important for our writing process because poetry requires precision that is very 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 um cut down right it's like you, you don't waste words in having to make them scan and rhyme and fit the stanzas and we're writing are rewriting each act in in 100 stanzas so we'll have 500 total in the book when we finish the whole thing over the next several years um and that that kind of crisp and careful writing i mean we've, we've gotten better at it i think in the internet world because everybody if you're in a text chat room you can't spend a lot of wall text right nobody wants to hear it Nobody wants. Nobody wants to read it. You, you <laughs> learn. You thing. learn how to be crisp and precise in in your in your written text. Um, but the thing that we we don't have culturally at the moment is a consciousness of how important this kind of shaped language is for um, mm -hmm. the public conversation. And and what's interesting is we do have. I mean, we do have music. But unfortunately, the lyrics in a lot of our music have gotten very plain. I mean, they may be rhythmic and they may rhyme and things like that, but they've they've lost a lot of the the um, complexity that 
older poetry used to have. And, and the Dark Herald is pointing to this, um, saying, you know, you know, it, it used to be that people would just, you know, assemble for readings of poetry. And he says, in the same way that everyone today knows the basics of Star Wars and Harry Potter, mm. all Americans of a bygone era knew a list of famous poems by heart. Everyone had read Passage to India, The Song of Hiawatha, Hope is a Thing with Feathers, and The Raven. You had only to speak a fragment and a perfect stranger could finish it for you. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Mm-hmm. Right. So the poetry, interestingly, used to be the cultural form that we now experience shared in, in movies and television shows and, and things like that. That It, it was the, the sung sounds that people had that tied them together so if we say you know we need culture we need poetry to tie together our memories and our and our stories and that poetry used to be yes. the thing it's poetry is a very ancient form it's like the most ancient literature and stories is poems it's it's gilgamesh it's homer you know the iliad and the odyssey it's it's the aeneid mm-hmm. it's beowulf that poetry is the primal training of the mind in stories and then the heart and the body and, 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 and things like that. So until very recently, mm-hmm. it used to be, it used to still have that presence and that therefore we felt like we had a culture, a shared culture. But um, he said, um, the Dark Herald says, poetry is quite possibly the oldest art form in existence. Before written records were created, poetry was used to pass down history, teach life lessons, and perhaps most important of all, internalize learning. Hymns are doctrines set to music, right? So... If we, if you know, if you want to understand understand what happened to Christianity, for example, you're not singing enough, mm. frankly, <laughs> mm. or you're not singing hymns, which are a particular kind of metrical poetry. Yeah, well, it, we've got our nursery rhymes, so it's the rhyme that rocks the cradle, and um, this is the the formation of a of of like a understanding of hu- of our story as human beings when we're when we're being sung to when we're being uh, rhymed to and singing hymns is usually the beginning of catechism for children that are attending church you know before they can even read they start to hear mm-hmm. sung hymns and this is how they begin to enter into the story of the bible and the understanding of christianity and who christ is it's uh singing so it's the poetry being the the high art of uh oral culture pre-literate culture Mm -hmm. and high art that doesn't rely on uh written technology like uh no alphabets you don't need to have any literacy in order to master a poetic form and I think that's where it's it's very wonderful um, because it's not limited to technological ability. Uh, a culture can achieve greatness in poetic format without having anything written down. And, and yeah, Just that's important. It's like it's 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 like mm. we said we're writing electric fairy tale and poetry. So we're writing this highly technological story in the most humanly basic form which is is you know poems the language yes. and we, we have talked about that before um 
I, I think maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll assume that you all don't watch absolutely every episode that we do and memorize it because we haven't uh, <laughs> that, that, that we come back to themes. It's because they, 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 I mean, things need to recur for people to really embed them in their understanding. And so we're getting this back mm -hmm. to trying to convince people of the significance of the breathed rhythms, which you get if you sing. Mm -hmm. And and it's interesting how much people sing. I think you sing karaoke. You're singing somebody else's lyrics. You sing in church. You usually using hymn books. You so that you know how you train yourself through the repetition of these these poems and stories. And um, the you know the, yeah. what the Herald talks about. He's saying you know the, the modern poetry, written poetry is is usually. I mean, one if you read it out loud, it doesn't make any sense. It just sounds like prose, and you can't see that. There's rhythm to it because it's just laid out on the page. It's very visual, right? You have to look at it to see mm -hmm. that it's poetry. Um, and, you know, the, he, he gives an example from Jack Kerouac. I saw that my life was a vast glowing empty page and I could do anything I wanted. Right. Now I could read it the way it's laid out on the page, but that is basically a sentence that he then just like breaks into. And there's no rhythm to it or it wouldn't be different oh. if it was only oral. Yeah, the phrase exists in a vacuum. Right. Uh, sorry, the, the phrase exists in a vacuum. It has no frame mm -hmm. because the rhythm isn't there. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it doesn't have the same effect. You don't really want to memorize that sentence. <laughs> yes, why would you? Where <laughs> You know, the, there's no pleasure in uh, digesting it and repeating it over and over and over again because there's no pattern to follow. Right, but with like nursery rhymes or something, it's like those are the ones that you can remember mm -hmm. because they get into your structures. So, and and, yes. and the other thing is is uh, that the Herald talks about is poetry is pure creation, which is why the enemy hates it, and and, and definitely. Mm -hmm. I, I in my Tolkien videos in my class, I talk a lot about that because the first thing Tolkien writes to try to explain himself to Lewis is a poem in iambic pentameter. It's the Mythopoeia, and. Everything that he writes after that, his novels, you know, the the Silmarillion and the other stories, they're all exercises in unpacking this one poem that he wrote, which in fact enfolds everything into it. So it's it's the purity of of the poems is is very important. Um, so that's why he's like, as that's why that's why we need poetry. But, but you you we, yes. we promised them that you were going to talk through what you wrote, and I think maybe you're you're kind of embedded. You're still embedded in the depths of this article <laughs> you published in Gab for their Christian. Is that, where did where do they put it in the Christ, strong Christian Christian artistry? Oh. Yeah, but but they also have a, a subset of yeah. uh, things on their blog, which is bold Christian writing. Right, so we'll be bold in artists, bold art, bold, bold, well, whatever. <laughs> okay, so I the thing bold. is, I think no, I think there's a, there's enough in here. It's story time is art war. That it's the story time is the art war. That it's it's mm -hmm. worth just working through this and unpacking it because it's it's mm -hmm. it's really everything that we've been trying to work on and why we really need you to be mm -hmm. reading our our poem when 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 we publish it. Um, What's an art war? <laughs> you start this. I mean, well, I love your opening. We live in a planetary art war. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, 
I was thinking about many things at once, as I usually do. <laughs> um, everyone's familiar with the phrase culture wars and everybody uses it and everybody uses it so much that it's become linked to the, uh, the concept of standing on a stage and having a debate between people that have different polit political ideologies. And DCR is not interested in political ideology whatsoever. We're interested in Christ and beauty and goodness and truth. And whatever falls from that falls from that. But the, they're the transcendentals that we want to be focused on. And so I was thinking about how what we're doing really is not culture war because we're not debating. And then I was thinking about the... <laughs> The, the funny accident of finding uh, myself with you talking at the beginning of a global pandemic and then you saying, okay, now we're all going to learn iambic <laughs> pentameter. <laughs> and what, what else do you do during a pandemic? What are you going to do? Okay, I'll stay home. You can only, you know, have, have so many days in hard lockdown before you really start to need some kind of mental stimulation. And everywhere we were hearing the same thing. It was, you know, uh, cases, 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 and then mandates, mandates, mandates. And so I just, we were kind of locked in this sterile language. You know, everyone's hand sanitizing and suddenly everybody's saying the same phrases over and over again. I'm thinking <laughs> our speech is getting hijacked by this virus. This virus is like a, a biological thing or is it the the meme of the thing is the virus because now the language is being completely hijacked by it and you had us doing iambic so i'd never done iambic before and then we're, we're looking at the definition of what an i am is it's a foot mm -hmm. dun 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 stepping and then i'm thinking okay we've got the heartbeat of the english language in that iambic dun 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 We've got the foot stepping and it just clicked that it was like having infantry and how they're mm. all in perfect formation going bum, 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 So it just, it sort of came to me as an idea that what we're doing is art war and um, we're doing art war against colonizers of our mother tongue and i can say this because hopefully now with some context and how it's been phrased the nursery rhymes the you know the rhymes that rock the cradle of our culture our civilization this is where we're formed and these stories are being hijacked by people all the time doesn't matter who it is and Everybody is rushing to do culture war and to have political debate and political, you know, um, fights with everybody about their ideology. But we were the only ones really paying attention to what was going on with the formation of our mother tongue. Mm -hmm. And when you were explaining to us that, you know, poetry was everywhere in English education and then vanished suddenly. And I thought, okay this is a really interesting moment for us as English speakers because 
this isn't happening to other cultures. It's English. What's got, what's going on with the English language that we're not uh, paying attention to our our uh, our cultivation of, of folk stories. Well, we're not, but there's some people that are. Mm. <laughs> some people are very, very interested in story time for children. So then I'm thinking, okay, now this makes sense. It starts to fit because, I mean, we're, we're now shifting away from political debates with grown adults to don't worry about it. It's irrelevant. What we're going to do is we're going to go into the nursery rhyme field and we're going to create our own folks stories or we're going to create our own kindergarten of mythology. And then I realized that this is essentially what we're, what we're all having to, to do now is, um, level up to a different warfare. There's a different level of warfare now in terms of being able to define ourselves without a colonial imposition over our mother tongue. So, yeah. Well, and the it thing is, is colonialism. it, was, it, was, it right. was always, I mean, the warfare has always been at this level in terms of culture. It's like when, when Virgil's yeah. writing the Aeneid, he knows very well what he's doing, which is creating a new, new yes. mythology for Rome, which takes it to Troy. Everybody ends up coming from Troy. It's very interesting. Um, and the story that we're saying that we took our stanza structure from is the fairy queen. Uh, that one yes. was written. We've, we've talked about that two, three episodes ago as, you know, Spencer trying to get money to praise Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> but but yes. he was he was yes. doing it very consciously as a recrafting of a myth for the Protestant Elizabethan court. And you know that mm -hmm. that it's it's highly anti-Catholic. His his fairy queen is as anti-Catholic as yes. you can get. That the monsters in the story are the church, Duessa. It's it, I mean everybody says Spencer the fairy mm -hmm. queen is is difficult to understand because it's so allegorical and such. And we talked about that as well. That he's putting characters from his own day in, which always gets more difficult the further away in time you get from mm -hmm. when those people were significant to the to the community um but he what he was doing was purposefully and consciously trying to remake the mythology of the arthurian stories of knights and chivalry and such into mm. this new virtue of protestant um Eliz you know elizabethan court culture as it were and so mm. i mean it's interesting therefore it's interesting to to, to some of the culture war stuff we've watched over the last few years, I and mean, you're thinking about the story time that has been happening in the libraries recently, but there, there have been mm -hmm. also things like Dr. Seuss being canceled because apparently because yes. of some of the drawings in his books. But I think it's, I mean, whether Dr. Seuss is a good guy or a bad guy, you know, everybody has, everybody has these adult backstories. Don't you realize that those grownups that were writing all those kids stories for you, they, they did other things. <laughs> and, and, and Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel did a lot of other stuff in terms of adult style artwork and, and things. Yes. Um, but you know, his, well, that was the same. Yes. Yes. So, you know, the kids, the kids story authors typically had some purpose in their, stripping things down into into story form but again it's like it's it's sort of astonishing that you know 
I don't know, whichever side we think we're on, we're on Christian side, right? We're on, we're on the Christ side mm. of the, the, the culture, whatever we're in has not been engaged more purposefully in writing stories, right? It's like, we're writing, we're always mm. worrying about losing the culture. And it's like, well, you got, you don't just lose it. You don't just lose, you, you can't understand the old stories unless you're making your new ones in response to those old stories. So it's, I mean, yeah. I'm getting tongue tied because it's so obvious to me, but <laughs> we need those yeah. stories. So you were, you were thinking, and we got Mel and Mel and um, Casey talking about, um, okay, Mel, Mel in, in her comments is sort of going where we're going to go, but we're not quite there yet. So we say, we, 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 we recognize that the, the primacy of the story time is one of the things that we need to be dealing with and that it seemed funny that in the midst of, I, I do like what you, you said. Um, that we were doing it. We we were we were we become this this one story in COVID. In COVID, we entered all time. Yes, mass yes. culture was pivoted to the hope of pharmacological salvation from the plague around us. The alchemical desire mm. of mankind for healing was amplified as the entire internet became a maelstrom of medical debate. And yet we found our healing in our story time where art became our focus. Art was our immunity mm. to the fear. It was also the way for us to craft our own narrative within the chaos of lockdowns. And as we created this narrative, we began to understand the power of telling stories that orientated our focus away from fear and towards the only serpent who cures all. Dun, dun, dun. Spoiler yes. alert. Yeah, we all we were doing it on purpose all along. The brazen serpent of Numbers twenty one four through nine. That's our. It's like our Draco Alchemicus is they're twins throughout it, so you have to pay attention, right? But that that we were taking yeah. we were taking the situation of fear and that story that was being cast around us and cast over us. We were very clear about that. Cast over us of if you must be afraid. I was watching so at, thanks yes. to the symposium we had on campus on Friday. Some of the people that, I, that were there, you know, really uh, Scott Atlas, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, Jonathan Turley, Todd Zawicki, uh, Casey Mulligan, um, these some of my my uh, John Burge. These are people that are you may know their names. Uh, Leslie Manukian of Health Freedom Defense Fund. I mean, we we were all talking about you know why academia failed to respond with hmm. actual research and complexity to the situation because we just got this you know sort of top-down media driven ring as i say right it's like that that one ring to rule them all is the media narrative and one of the things i asked is like why did you know it's like well why did we fail what was it what was it we failed and i suggested i wasn't really speaking yes. i was doing it leading a panel um to a certain extent but i was also thinking you know we didn't the symposium was brilliant. Thank you all for coming. But we didn't get to the core of the problem in my mind because we didn't get to the part of the storytelling. We didn't get to the part where it mm. was just this overriding, um, not just propaganda feeling, although that was de definitely that, but this fairy tale of monsters that nobody was able to, to say boo to. Right. And if you tried, of course, you know, mm. you could lose your job. You could get shut out of your dorm. You could, you know, get coerced into but mainly through fear into taking medicines that would hurt you and sometimes kill you um mm -hmm. and 
therefore ironic for those of us in the during common room that we found out writing iambic pentameter every hour an hour every day was the cure <laughs> to that mm -hmm. level of assault on our psyches yes it was very important um especially being down here in australia the we had been restricted so much that after the very very long time of hard lockdowns curfews and other things that were going on people started to feel like they were not in control of their own lives anymore and i certainly had that feeling where um all the rhythm of a normal day had evaporated and the days had been stretched and bled into each other and then you know it's like the stars are whirling overhead and you don't really know what month you're in anymore because that was that was the feeling um probably something very similar to a solitary confinement and it's because we'd all lost agency over the the, the writing of the of, of our daily mm -hmm. life you know i'm going to do this today i'm going to go and see this person i'm going to uh plan it, it was gone so the the structure of time had been taken away from us because we lost access to it in the same way that we were used to having and so having tea time every day was like being pulled into a small um a, a small oasis in this very insane desert without form mm. you know you've got the you've got to, this kind of swirling mountains of sand that change every day there's you know there's no landscape to attach yourself to and that's how it felt with time and then suddenly we had tea time so i was like okay oasis there's form here there's structure there's you know um you guys get the metaphor you get the point but it was really important because beyond that small moment of structure where we were refining language and being incredibly uh, disciplined, uh, there was no other opportunity to do something in the same way. Um, and and speak about something that wasn't despair, mm -hmm. which was really important because every conversation I was having with people was either in defense of the mandates or a fear of COVID or a fear of death or a rage against the mandates, rage against the people that were going along with it. But regardless of the position, everything everywhere was just despair. Mm -hmm. So it was like drowning in it. And so tea time was this beautiful, um, beautiful respite from it. We could actually make something beautiful and control what we were saying and have a, have some beauty in our speech that wasn't connected to the to the virus so uh, having that regularity and that discipline was was an anchor and then also learning to speak with the regularity mm -hmm. that iambic da -dun, da -dun, da -dun. so it was like okay finally we have a metronome for time <laughs> um which but then then you important. say you say you're describing it as this was like it was in the the covid time but the thing is it's like it's what humanity lives in otherwise it's like we we have mm -hmm. this you know this problem that we think of modernity is all mechanized and you get the metronome and it's got clocks and there's a very significant watch in our story 
<laughs> um, yeah. and that can be described as something that's, you know, just, you know, overstructured and, and, you know, dehumanizing and things like that. But the opposite is the problem too. It's like without a sense, I mean, human beings, we make stories and we make giant clocks like Stonehenge, <laughs> um, that, that, that sense of being able to mark time seems to be incredibly important to us and that yeah. stories are a way our poetry and our stories are a way of creating meaning out of the flow right otherwise which you know mm -hmm. the animals don't don't seem to be bothered by but we definitely are if we don't have a sense of um not just schedule but also structure that gives meaning to each day we despair. I mean, we, you've talked about it before. It's like dream time or something. It's like the, if we're, we're sort of drowning yes. in the, the impressions and sensations and no, I mean, language is, is designed for us to be able to make meaning out of time. Mm. I, I've, I've also thought about it. I, I was one time sitting on a balcony looking out over the trees with, um, my brother and I felt like I, you know, I wanted to talk to him cause like, I just don't get to see him that often. I just wanted to talk. And then I was no talking would be doing something that was bringing in things that weren't there. Right. It's like our sitting mm -hmm. there looking at the trees yeah. was present. It was absolutely present language instantaneously starts. It's it's that's why Tolkien, when he talks about the power of language, the power of the adjective, the power of spells, right. But all speaking is, this kind of spell because you're talking about things that were there and things that will be there it's hard to stay it's the language is hard to stay completely in the present because the present is just now right it's where dogs live <laughs> um it's it's, mm -hmm. it's focus and yes. attention on the on the present we live in an, yes. an you know this expanded attention of the past and the future and I mean, what you're describing with the, the COVID mandates and the lockdowns and such, I, that was the blog post that I wrote back in May 2020, right when I started the Dragon Common Room, actually, as my Telegram chat, about how everyone was using the, the presence of the virus as an excuse not to do stuff. And, and time was just kind of mm -hmm. dribbling away. It turned it all turned into a Salvador Dali painting, right? The, the, yeah, that one that was melting clocks, right? It's just nothing. You could go for days and days and days and it, nothing, you could never know whether it was going to happen or not and, because the virus might interrupt and then you just, you know, destroy all, all sense of you can plan. It, there's a, there's a toxicity in over planning, but there's also a toxicity in having nothing to look forward to, to do, to plan, to be able to structure together. So yeah, that when you were talking about, we were just in this desert of, of, of shifting dunes and that the tea time was an oasis. That is it literally what the monasteries were originally designed for one to go out in the desert and fight demons. Cause that's where they are. But two, to give training to the soul within life so that it has that significance and structure. Mm. Yeah, we found our monastic discipline in the the COVID madness. It was magnificent. Um, it was it was different too. I think that uh, I I I really saw when Australia. Uh, went into the the eye of the 
the storm of this um, media maelstrom, you know, that people were forgetting about life very quickly, even though they were desperate to preserve mm. it. And I think the most beautiful thing about having the art projects that we've been working on is that we've actually been focused on life consistently for the few years since this all started. Um, by gathering it together and knitting it into a tapestry to connect what's been happening to what happens before we were here, this kind of weaving experience that we've been doing uh the it, you know it's it can seem it, it it could have seemed such a such a waste of time but it's like you know when fishermen are out on boats they used to do this the celtic fishermen used to take wool with them and they would be they'd be knitting as they were fishing they were master master knitters mm -hmm. uh you know quite renowned for their knitting and it's just because they were doing that as they were sitting there and having conversations. And so it's like the, the art becomes the way of forming something tangible in a time when uh, your experience could be wasted, staying connected to everything. Um, I don't know, having your hands on it. And, and we were doing this with these stories um, while everybody was forgetting that uh, simple things like being able to have human touch was important to the, to human life. You know, every, the, the entire experience of the world, I mean, it, we've removed everything. We've removed everything that makes us human for years. And so what I had when I was working with, um, with you in the, in the poems was reconnecting to something human. And I think that's why I, I, I wrote what I wrote in, in, you know, making this phrase art war because for, for that kind of moment, it was like, okay, well now we have to, we're, we're doing art, but it really was like a kind of warfare because, uh, you know, having to push away all of the, the messaging that was coming in that said that this is not important. You don't need to have art. You don't need to have beauty. You don't need to have anything that makes you human. You just need to survive. Right. You know, just being alive is enough. Uh, it's not. There is something about art. And then I was, you know, reading Chesterton, which, you know, kind of made it click for me that we have, you know, we've been created as you said, we're sub-creators. We've been created in the image of the creator. And Chesterton was talking about these cave paintings mm. and that there's really no such thing as prehistoric man because every time we find any evidence of prehistoric man, he's doing something like painting on a cave. Chesterton went through this really beautifully and said, well, how do you know he was stupid? He's making art. Mm -hmm. You know, so it becomes a part of the human experience is that no matter what kind of technological situation you're in or environmental situation you're in or your linguistic uh, mode people are artists to be human is to be an artist so that's why i think it's so important that you know we start to think about what's happening and especially what's happened in the last couple of years it's an art war the art war is the war to stay human despite yes this techno dystopia that everybody seemed to have uh, been hypnotized by
Well, you that's, that yes, and that's the irony the of it. It's like, oh, you know, the, the yeah. humanities, what are they good for? You can't make a living with them. It's like, you can only make living. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you can only live. Yes. You, yeah, you yes. can't make a living with them. You can yes. live with them. Chestertonian yes. is like, I need, to, I need to warm up on my Chestertonian paradoxes. But you're saying that what we had with the COVID stuff was a um, significant moment of a test, yes. but it's actually a, a demonstration of the reality of life, which is... We yes. need the art, and and what you just said now is the the art war is the war to be human, because we are. Yes. It I mean it, it, what I you know it's like I keep saying meaning that art gives us meaning and beauty so truth beauty and goodness so it gives us both the meaning and the 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 joy and our morality that we cannot I mean it's like it's like the strongest version we cannot be moral without our art. The, and and everything that mm -hmm. wants to say the the alchemical machine is sufficient, as you said, just like mm -hmm. hook you up to a machine and keep you alive so that you're what, yep. right? Breathing meat, yep. breathing, right? It's like breathe, you're breathing meat. Yep. That's it. Whereas mm -hmm. human beings yeah. need both language. We have the sense of time and this structuring of it so that we. I mean, it's not just enjoyment, right? It's it's actually it's cognitively necessary to make art. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, I mean, the there's something about the you know, getting back into the political thing, but this is why I've never liked saying I'm a conservative and because I'm not a conservative. And I find it that it's an interesting problem mm. in the conservative world that there are not many artistic people. Now everyone's going to scream and cry, but I don't care. <laughs> I grew up with hard, I grew up with hard left, like hard left people, very creative people, like wonderfully high achieving creatives that were all hard left. There's something about the problem with the conservative world mm. defining itself with this fis fiscal conservatism and forgetting that humans are not economic units and abandoning the, you know, uh, human, the human as artist, where they leave this horrendous impression that people that are weird and, you know, like actually being sub creators and want to just mess around and make everything beautiful. Mm. Well, you don't have, you don't really have a home there because it's, it's just ones and zeros and it's all economic policy and there, there, there. So then you've got all these people, like the kind of people that I grew up with who find, you know, they've got to go and rush in the other direction and they've all been captured and captivated by whatever fables and stories have been swirling around in that, um, section of uh, of our civilization because they're inherently storytellers so they're connected to the stories and so i mean i find it very interesting that i had so much exposure to the um you know american music that i did when i was younger because of these kinds of uh you know um exchanges through singing through song and that that's because creative people want to be immersed in in the in the storytelling in some way visually or making songs or right. whatever and 
and somehow that soup of stories, you know, as you put it with uh, with Tolkien, like that that soup of stories that all of all of these creative people have been swimming in, has been infected with bad viruses. Mm. These bad linguistic viruses, which have attached themselves to those fables, and that this is a kind of way of looking at it, where I don't get too furious with the people that I know that have kind of gone off the deep end of you know whatever like woke agenda has been inserted, because if you're somebody who enjoys being in in story time mm. constantly, then you don't want to leave it. The problem is that story time for the human artist has to it has to be modeled on the storyteller the creator mm. or the story gets hijacked so yeah i mean i have no idea how i started that sentence i got lost and that's how easy it is i just kind of go in there right. and then you're whirling around no and this is i, mean, lose, we're, I mean we're actually you lose orientation suddenly wow i don't know where i am oh i'm at a drag queen story time now with my kid on the lap of some like six foot two guy in a wig wow that's how that's how it happens yeah. You know, but no, this really. is so we're 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 going as we usually do, which is why I enjoy working with you. <laughs> I was like, I, know, I where do we? How do we get there? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> that um, <Sorry. laughs> no, so we were thinking about the art war and the timing and the spiritual training yeah. and, and stuff like that. But I hadn't put together. I mean, it is it is a frustrating element of whatever culture war we're in that you know which side who you know who has control of the it's control it's the the storytelling and it's like the 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 economic story i mean this this is what's interesting about spencer and the fairy queen because we've talked about this before that the elizabethans are creating one kind of story that tells them that the main story yeah. that you want is to get the gold yeah. um gold the digging. gold digging and that yeah. the um you know, I, we've also pointed to this, which remind people of it, that gold digging involved first going in and stealing all the property of the monasteries, which is interesting. So we're saying that yes. our, our dragon common room is modeled on a monastic regularity of meet regularly mm -hmm. and tell stories and, and, and sing, sing and meter. Um, and that the Elizabethans, I mean, first the Henry and then Elizabeth, actively stole from the monasteries to then go off and make i mean ironically spencer is trying to make art for elizabeth and shakespeare writes plays that get performed in her court but then it's like how do we end up with no art on the side of wait what mm -hmm. right it's like it's it's a it's a whole fracturing of the culture i don't think it's necessarily the left and the right we've talked about that before too it's no. like this the 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 wholeness of the human experience, which the monasteries actually understood. They were both labor and prayer, right? So their work, you know, cultivating and building and craftsmanship and economic management and landowning and stuff like that, and the art, that, that was split in two, right? So we have this, we've mm -hmm. talked about this a lot, right? That split between, oh yes, there's economic man and there's artistic man and these two are separate and at odds with each other. We would like your gold so that we can write our story, please. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that that in itself is one of the great sort of myths of modernity that you're gonna be fractured out in this yeah. way. 
it, it's interesting that Spencer really wasn't part of that. I mean, what he wanted to do was make this heroic, virtuous allegory to show Elizabeth as, in fact, queen. I mean, she's the queen of the fairies, right? She's fairy, the, the fairy queen, Gloriana, which doesn't really, she doesn't appear as a character in the story that much, ironically. It's like named for the character that isn't there. Um, but he's trying to show the way in which these adventuring knights are tested by vice and temptation and battles and things like that and, and emerge, emerge virtuous. It didn't work. Except it really kind of did, sort of, or did it? it it's it's mm. hard to. I mean, no one who reads the Fairy Queen. I sh I'm sure you guys are like totally, you know, dying in dread when we keep saying, "Oh yes, we're modeling this story on the Fairy Queen." She's gone silent again. Okay, so yeah, so much so that we've lost we've lost lost kilts back to the. The real life. This is <laughs> you, you. You appreciate how professional we can seem when we pretend that we actually have like studios and stuff in our in the midst of our family. Going, where is the laundry? <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> how good am I? Right, I figured it out. It's, it's the laundry. She yes, knows. It's, she I knows. Know, all. I know all. Uh, the, well, yeah, I so, mean, if we well, if we keep going on and telling you over and over and over again, we've modeled this on the Fairy Queen. Is that going to persuade you to say, yes, I want stories of knights and dragons and beautiful damsels? And it's written in iambic pentameter. Oh goodness, I don't think I can deal with it. No, they're not going to. They're not going to care, are they? They're they're never, <laughs> never, never, never going to care because. And I think no. this is going back to our earlier uh, meditations. Um, you want. Okay, so there is there is the desire to be in a story that shows you something you hadn't realized before. And we like being surprised and delighted by stories, mm. except we don't. We yes. hate it. We basically <laughs> always want to find ourselves in the same story, which is why genre fiction is popular. Um, you know, you, as I would say I want a mystery novel. I want a kind of story that I know is going to give me a certain kind of problem experience, right? If I have a, a, mm -hmm. a sci-fi thriller, it's going to be one thing. If I have a fantasy romance, it's going to be another thing. And, and genre is, I, I think you were actually sharing something recently about this in our writing group. Genre is actually your friend <laughs> because it helps you craft structures of stories that have, um, I don't know, not just that feed at people's expectations, but but people like being satisfied by a, a sense that like I know where I am in mm -hmm. this story. That's not a bad thing. If it's a romance, I want it to end happily. It's a comedy. <laughs> right? Yes. If yes. it's a horror story, well, I still want it to end unhappily. But after the bad guy gets taken out, right? And, you know, it's it's the <laughs> there are and people are very unsatisfied when stories don't reincorporate elements so you want the Chekhov's gun right there's like there's an element in the story at the beginning it needs to be meaningful we are pattern seeking mm. like scavengers we desperately desperately want the stories to all fit together and match up and so the occult story is actually just one version of the yeah. story it's like i'm going to be given occult wisdom and escape from this world and you know have power over everybody well, it's fragmented yeah. it's fragmented it's not integrated right 
And may maybe this is why the Fairy Queen didn't work but did work. Because it was, I mean, the, the Elizabethan era was the disintegration of mm. England because the tapestry was torn, you know. You've got Catholic England and then you've got Protestant Elizabethan England and there's this literal schism that happens in the country where the monasticism is raided by pirates. And so this fusion of work and prayer, aura et labora, is, the, you know, there's a rift it's it's like uh, it's it's completely uh, diffused and then this poem is created around it to kind of in, uh, encourage virtue and vice but the the poem can't work if it's not connected to what already existed it's sort of like overlooking the elephant in the mm. room <laughs> that elizabeth had you know kind of rebooted england as this uh protestant pirate machine and then you know no one no one talk about the elephant in the room what's that we used to be catholics yeah or, you know like the monarch is hunting down everybody just because they're practicing their ancestral religion <clears throat> cough don't talk mm. about it so maybe there's a, an element of that i'm not sure but the pattern in genre it's probably something to do with that, again, stitching to existing layers. People like to build on what they already know. I mean, I like surprises, but not to the point where what, what modernity has done, which is, uh, what do they call it? You know, it's like an act of defiance. Every, every little bit of art is like an act mm. of defiance or it's a radical act of defiance or whatever. And it's like they're defying what exactly? Uh, pleasure, <laughs> you know? We're going to create something specifically to mock oh i see where you're going yes but, but the thing is i mean that the yeah, reason yeah. that that's that that's ultimately you know sort of going to destroy everything is um the mockery depends on the existence of the actual primary story yes. and and once you mock sufficiently i mean i think that's 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 certainly what's happening in the satire not so much satire satire is is more powerful we wrote satire in centrism games um, the the way in which everything is edgy and destructive. It's like when you have literally okay. no center and the margins have eaten it, yes. there's nothing left. There didn't, there's, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they've, they've, uh, they've, uh, denied that a prototype, they've denied a prototype exists and then destroy, attempting to destroy prototype. Right. But not, you cannot, it's like having a body without a skeleton. You know, it's the, Okay, so everybody Big watching, this is what yeah. it's like work for me working with kilts. It's like, sh I'll have an idea that we had a story, <laughs> a story, and then I'll start, we'll start <laughs> talking. And then I'm in 18 different news stories. And no, actually, our plot was people like being finding out they're in the same story. <laughs> How topical is that, right? Okay, so I know the thing is, I think what you're saying, the Fairy Queen didn't work. We talked about that um, a couple episodes ago that. I mean, even Elizabeth may or may not have ever read it and it didn't, it didn't take off. I mean, Shakespeare, I mean, to be fair, Shakespeare didn't take off there. Shakespeare has the cultural presence that it does not because of the 17th century in which all the theaters were closed because of the Puritans. Um, but because of revival and, and we talked about Spencer too, that it, it's, it's more, there's a modern revival of Spencer in the 19th century with the Victorian medievalism 
and not so much at the time mm. because he doesn't really succeed in remaking a myth that undoes what Elizabeth and her father did with the destruction of the previous fabric. Mm. Um, so it's it's actually hard making new stories. I think is is the lesson there. I mean, and Spencer Spencer is trying right. He's he's playing off of um, some of them like um, Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. Torcada Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered. I've read some of Ariosto. It's I, I should keep reading because it's fun and like they have to go to the moon to get Whirlin's wits back and stuff because he's mad. But I I I prom I confess I haven't gotten that far into it. And Jerusalem Delivered and Spencer Spencer was writing for people that knew those stories. These great epic poems that go on for you know volumes and volumes. Mm -hmm. um, and so his audience probably had some context there, but he. It's not clear to me that at the time he succeeded in creating a story that everybody could could resonate with, um, and, that, and therefore stories fail. Right? If they don't seem to tap into what people quote already know, they they fail. But but that therefore we this is this is not doing a great 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 advertisement for our story. We're modeling on Spencer's Fairy Queen, and he didn't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> except ironically he did only later in for example the form of the book that i'm showing you now which is a reprint from george allen ruskin house um an illustrated one uh and and edited and it's got their una and her and her lion therefore you know you did oh wait a lady and a lion that that sounds cool maybe i'll read a story about that it's got some pictures and and that's great um How shall I tell it? How how should we say? It? So, uh, I, I've been I've been thinking about like press releases for for our work and, and and saying so you're in the elevator with someone and saying oh yeah and you hand them the card that here we've been working on this and it's got a beautiful picture on it and such and they say yeah it's a, it's an electric electric fairy tale and they go uh, and you say oh yeah it's 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 modern on Spencer's Fairy Queen and their the eyes are glazing over and you're just like oh my gosh how am I going to pitch this yeah. <laughs> oh wait i've got it it's star wars with dragons <laughs> you think yes. we're kidding we're actually <laughs> entirely serious and we have scholarship to prove it which is uh this wonderful article by i will tell you richard keller simon in what he a uh, book called trash culture popular culture and the great tradition Right, and I haven't read his whole book, but I have read the chapter on uh, Star Wars and the Fairy Queen. And guess what? George Lucas is a thief. Wait, no, no. George Lucas is a creative uh, sub-creator because, of course, all art, as VA Boston has beautifully said in one of her video comments on our on our um, uh, mosaic arc, um, which I she said it better, and it's on our website that all art is. Uh, okay, I'm gonna look on our website because I like the way she said it. A sec. You go to our website and you look at behind the scenes and we'll give you all of our references to all the things we've been reading because unlike some, we give footnotes. Art is referential. I think it has to be. No one but God creates ex nihilo. So art is referential. It's always referring to itself. It's referring to previous stories. It's referring to the retellings, right? Basically, like we said, there's only one story. We keep telling the same story over and over and over again. And the Wayne Booth's famous formulation of it was there's only two plots. Uh, you go on a journey or a stranger comes to town. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, it's the same story, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's yeah. different stories from different perspectives, but in fact, we keep telling the same stories over and over and over again, and that's what George Lucas did. And delightfully enough, we now understand that what he did um, in Star Wars was in fact character by character retell Spencer's Fairy Queen. So guess what, guys? You already know the story. And, and, <laughs> and I'm going to prove it with re- a little bit of reading from, from Simon's um, um, Star Wars and the Fairy Queen here. Uh, that spent, you know, that, that the Star Wars created for so many of us kind of self-included, but not really, because I never really went full force, right? But but mm-hmm. certainly for, for many people, it's like Star Wars is the anchor of their mythology. And, you know, mm-hmm. I absolutely appreciate that. I do not like anything after the first three, as far as I'm concerned, the three movies. I don't know what the other ones are doing. Um, but I do recognize I said, chaos, consternation, <laughs> no, with, you know, with the Gen X people. Yeah, it was the three that we saw when we were kids. Sorry. And seeing the ones that came out in the 90s. Not the same, same, same soundtrack, not the same story, but the, what Lucas managed to do was create a mythology that is not in fact new. It's in fact, Spencer's fairy queen, and we will now proceed to prove it. Mm -hmm. But the, the, you know, the sense that we had of sort of going and saying, we need to retell this fairy queen story and fight it. Right. This is the irony. It's like the, our, our, our Drake Alchemicus is in fact both modeled on Spencerian verse forms and desire for allegory and, you know, complexity of, of fairy world and stuff. And of course, fighting the great dragon that is in, in fact Spencer's own story, uh, the, the Protestantism mm-hmm. of it. But you already know it yes. because you've already seen Star Wars and probably memorized it. No. <laughs> you haven't seen Star Wars? I've seen snippets of Star Wars. So it's, it's a completely lost on her. See, this is our problem, right? Per- if you haven't seen Star Wars, you'll have no idea what our poetry is about. Wait. <laughs> As a perfect illustration of cultural disintegration, mm. every single time I've tried to sit down to watch Star Wars beginning to end, I inevitably fall asleep. You end up in dream so time. I've seen- yes, very good. I end up in dream time. Or... I've walked into a room as everyone's already been watching parts of it. So I've seen parts of Star Wars that have not been in chronological order, which kind of explains how I talk to you in our conversations. I'm in, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I, I don't think horror is the right word. <laughs> I, I think he is sort of, Milo has this experience talking to me, you know, it de- depends. I know things he doesn't expect me to know, like Lone Wolf and Cub which I read, you know, in the manga versions, because when I was obsessing on Samurai, I found all of that. But then I don't know other things, right? And he's like, how could you not know this, right? And and that that sense of, do you know the story or you not? That's what people are upset about when they say we are losing the culture, right? What they're losing is a sense yes. that people are in the same story, that you've got the character mm-hmm. reference, you've got the, the plot reference, that I can say, okay, you have watched The Hobbit, you do know The Hobbits, yes? Can we do Hobbits? I'm going to die now when she says yeah. no. That, that oh, we can God, do. Thank goodness. <laughs> right. That, that it, it's interesting. <laughs> no, but it's funny because if you, if you, if you know the story, you're, you're suddenly in this whole world of references and associations and illusions that are meaningful. 
Whereas if you don't know the story, mm. and, and, and there is always this problem of when do you introduce them, right? We have this problem right. as Christians. It's like you need to tell the kids the stories as they're growing up so that they will have this sensation of being in the story. So that when you get to the part mm. where, oh, yes, they crucify him. <laughs> And then spend your life meditating on that, what that part of the story means and who the they are and what the situation is and who he was and who his mom was yeah. and all of that. That it, it just this ricocheting sense of belonging in that, that narrative. If you don't get mm -hmm. it when you're growing up, it's different from if you get it later. And and the, the, the stories, and we talk about this, the nursery rhymes and the stories that we get when we're children. All of this matters, right? It really, really, it absolutely critically matters what stories you hear as you're growing up. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. Well, this is why people are getting upset with you and other uh, What do I do? I tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. This is a problem. Um, well, it's it's that the, they don't know the references, you know. It's like you're talking about you're talking about Star Wars, and they have no idea what you're talking right. about, and then they're getting angry with you instead of realizing that they just don't understand the story that you're trying to explain to them. So this is true. Instead of admitting, yeah, instead of admitting, like I've never actually watched Star Wars one, two, and three in chronological order, so I know references kind of, but it would be basically the same thing as you trying to explain. Christendom, medieval Christianity, um, you know, Marian devotion, all of those kinds of things, the experience of Christians prior to, you know, uh, the iconoclastic Protestantism, especially the Elizabethan era and what it did to the understanding of Mary and Christ and all the temple imagery, all of it gone. So it's like us trying to explain Star Wars to people that have never seen it, that kind of part of the world. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? That means we're not the same. We don't have the same culture. We've, we've, we've lost the, the continuity there. There's like a completely different thing. Well, but I mean, so the irony is what I there's in... never such a thing as continuity. There's the stories you heard when you were growing up. And well, that's what I mean. That's what I mean by <laughs> continuity. I mean, like all, all the, um, to, a, a, a tradition of of uh, passing down that story and however it's been passed down. Right, but the, but this is uh, I, I said this. I mean, so I, what's interesting is that most of the time the stories that people feel like they're like everlasting and and you know we I can go back to I, I, right now. I'm on the slide is on the Star Wars. Excuse me, I'm burping. Um, 1977 poster. But if we go back to the Spencer Fairy Queen covered. This is from the 19th or early 20th century. I found it on archive.com. I, I really should get my references better so I can footnote everything so people don't get mad at me about that. But there's a whole period between when Spencer publishes his poem and these 19th century illustrated picture versions when nobody's reading it, right? It's archaic. It's, 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 mm. it's overlong. It's, it's not, it's that stories can recapture people's imagination obviously. Mm. And I mean, th that's, what's interesting. On the one hand, we're only ever telling the stories that we already heard. And on the other hand, stories do have a, a sort of recovery. It's like, it, and it's interesting how they can be re -re recovered by artists who are retelling them. Like a language. Yeah. It's exactly like a language revival. Well, I put the you know, I put the example in the in the in the blog post in the article that uh, was published a couple of days ago, that the occult, it, 
the immersion into being a Greek meant that you knew Greek stories. Right. You'd grown up hearing Greek stories. That defined Greek identity in all the city-states, their particular mythology, their stories. But just being Greek meant you knew Greek stories. And how did you know Greek stories? Because you were spoken to as a child in the Greek language, transmitting the Greek stories. So that's identity through fable, you mm-hmm. know, how we're going to how we're going to bequeath an identity is okay we will we'll teach these greek we will make these children greek how we will give them greece this uh fairyland of the hellenic world that defines everything you know the 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 intra referentiality of all of the characters and the right. the the motifs and the archetypes and the prototypes and how you know the gods and all of the things are gone so that made you a greek and uh, that process has been forgotten in this really weird kind of moment now that we have in the West where we're worrying about um, identity as a, I mean, what they say, intersectionality, the intersection it's like traffic control. <laughs> it's just still, it, you know what I mean? It's like you're on the intersection of what? Like this is a highway? Do yes, you know, so no, that's traffic, true. Yes, it's, it's a traffic not, control this problem. This is not like a, this is not life. You know, no one's living in your car. So it's, it's like they're, they're picking, I know this is weird, but this is how I think. You're picking terms to define how you're trying to say that you're created and formed by your experiences but then still using all of this commercial linguistic terminology which essentially puts you back into being economic unit you know and reframing this all as like oh this makes me who i am because of what because i have this kind of label not this is the myth that i am in like i am in this one you know this is what makes me x this makes me greek why because I'm in this myth. Well, and so my I think people told this story. I mean, that's so it was this really odd sort of like that's why know. we're having the history wars it, here about the 1619 project yeah. and things like that. It is a mythological problem of saying which story are you going to say mm-hmm. is primary. But going back to say the commercial, the intersectionality and stuff. It's all branding, right? I've been I've been thinking about this because in order to launch our our Kickstarter, we needed to be able to like you know show it's like star wars or dragons but i mean in fact that that that's a that's an attention getter that then we still have to unpack um yeah. a logo a visual yes. is suddenly it's like all there all at once you're we we started last week yeah. in, in our we have a, a team of four hobbits right that, that are trying to do all of this and um start showing it to people a lot right and then and then you get this sense of oh i've already right. seen that this, this exercise, if I've seen that, oh, what is it? Uh, that works yeah. best with an icon, which is saying why, um, I think I think thinking about, now I don't remember who, we, were we talking about this saying, without, oh golly, without iconography, we can't have any knowledge. But now I don't remember who I was talking with when, was that you? Rat. Okay, so that that, <laughs> no, 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 that that we we so we designed it. We designed a logo image to, to use on our our branding, right? And then I started oh. realizing that, um, you know, oh golly, I've done I've done what happens when I talk to you, and I don't know I don't have my anchor, 
I've lost the story. I'm out in the sea. Help, help. I'm <laughs> no, I'm, we're thinking I'm, about we're thinking about creating the icon yeah. because otherwise we're just trying to explain the story to everybody. Which doesn't work. You need and, an image in your head. To, no, yes, you need an image in your head to start anchoring the story before you start telling the story. Yes. Yes. It starts with image. Yes. It has to start with image in the mind before it comes out. Otherwise, there's nothing. So, yes. Yeah. The, it starts with icon but i would well, i was okay that, hold that no, the you, idea of you were saying that <laughs> <laughs> we promised to show you guys some of our process of this is what it's like <laughs> it's so much fun i love it <laughs> you're gonna be amazed if the poem actually is linear and you can read it from beginning to end and it all fits yeah. together with pictures um Thanks. Uh, mainly, yes, because I do chronology and history, right? And there's a thread that runs through yeah. all of it. And then she's going, it's going to be this. And I'm like, you've got to have a narrative. Um, and and yeah. that's that we, we're going to have to do an episode, particularly on the comics level of it, the the, the picture and, and, mm. and text that, that we work with. But no, so go back to the, the go back to the branding thing. It's like that I, w I was thinking also about how all everything that all of the wars that we're fighting right now are they're sort of magical contagion right you want something to mm -hmm. when, when someone sees your brand you want this cascade of ideas to come with it and and therefore and, and because oh no this i think i'm i didn't tell you that i was thinking about this so this is all a little bit undone um that branding becomes the mm -hmm. way in which we think about everything from the 20th century because of advertising, right? And so the brands that are associated with advertising stories, they always want to be, you know, it's like if you see the Twilight Zone, it's going to be with that soap, right? If, if you, if, yeah. if, so everything, it's like this magical contagion of brands with stories is the bigger context of what we've been fighting, which is this sort of heraldic chivalry association mm. with every brand and story brand and story and so everybody doesn't want their brand associated with the wrong story that explains why mm. you know you have the wrong story you try to associate your brand with a story nobody likes that story brand explodes that's a little too densely yep. compacted still there <laughs> but i was thinking about it because we were trying no, to create our brand for our story sense. and let's say what do we want it associated yeah. with we want to associate with christianity and dragons and fairy tales and you know um and then i was thinking about keywords and i couldn't figure out what the other ones were right but it it's because because of the power of that logo association it's iconography. And that's what yeah. I said. You're saying that's why with the commercial revolution, with the Elizabethans, when you destroy all the icons, you destroy people's ability to anchor themselves in the story. I think that's where I was going. Iconography yes. is in fact a destruction yes. of the ability to think at all. I can, I can, I iconoclasm, I, iconoclasm. <laughs> I can't do it. Iconoclasm, iconoclasm destroys your ability to think. Yes. That's that's yes. how powerful it is, and that's why brands are attacked, icons are attacked. There's this attack on, yeah. and it, it's 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 a it's it's like it's visceral is the wrong adjective for it. It's, I mean, your entire being can be wrapped up in your ability to recognize that image. Yes, uh, I'll because uh, I've got really two two really nice examples of this in terms of advertising and iconoclasm like the power of having this uh, iconic 
kind of invasion. Mm. So in Australia now, Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, are promoting this thing that's this political argument that's going on right now. It's called the Voice to Parliament, where uh, basically uh, Republicans that are not overtly calling themselves Republicans want to enshrine this thing called Voice to Parliament for First, First Nations people. It's a different debate, whatever. I was really interested in pharmaceutical company like Pfizer has created this uh, advertisement to promote voice to parliament. So you, you kind of wonder like, what business do you have in indigenous affairs? You're a corporation, right? They put the Pfizer logo over this really horribly designed. It was so disgusting. It was supposed to be like Aboriginal mm. art, which I really like, like the dot paintings. And it's not art like uh, for aesthetic sake, you know, they're, it's, it's got its own kind of technological function and it has to be connected to the culture, it has to be connected to the storytelling. So hopefully this kind of like links to what we're doing here. It's intra-referential, it's connected to other, uh, other pieces and they all fit together in this big mosaic and this all fits together all over the continent of Australia. And then you've got, you know, you've got a narrative then and everyone knows where they belong, they know who their people are because they know what story they're in what part of the story they're telling. Pfizer sticks a logo over the top of it, makes this horrible version of this dot painting. It's just mm. awful. And I looked at it and it was like screaming at me, this like horrible visual violence of all of a sudden this corporate brand inserting itself into indigenous aesthetic. But what actually it looked like to me was the, <laughs> it was the intrusion of this multinational corporation in dream mm. time. You have no business. You have no business in there. You don't belong in there. These stories don't include Pfizer, right? Right, but they now, know what they're doing and trying to attach their brand to do. that. Yeah, they do. So it's like we we're gonna get in there. It's you're penetrating this like uh, they're penetrating the native psychodrome, right? This is really kind of intense sort of experience for someone who thinks like. In a, in, a, in a iconistic kind of way, we're trying because to get you all in this like, trip. You realize, <laughs> yeah, you never leave it once you're in, and and then the brand is there. So it's like this horrible, like imagine you know, this beautiful like kind of map, and then someone's just you know, it's like they've just they've slapped a they've, they've slapped a an ad on on top of it you know it's like you're in a, a yosemite national park or something you know somewhere very, very 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 beautiful in america and then all of a sudden there's a mcdonald's in the middle of yosemite mm. that's what it looks like and so this is what they're doing to the to the 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 visual field of the story or the the culture so there was that example and then another one i forgot because i was ranting too much <laughs> Eventually, we it, have to write all this down so that it turns into something that we can recover and, and come back to. But that that I was I the thing is going back to the so it, when your identity is made commercially, you're nothing but brands, and 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 advertising yes. is of course I, the identity politics stuff is it, it's a straight up artifact of marketing because you are you are mm -hmm. trained to think I can only. You know, the, the branding, they say we want people to associate themselves with the story. So we've been saying this before. It's like you you want to find yourself in the story. That's the power of stories. Advertising is all little stories. Dorothy Sayers has this great take on it in Murder Must Advertise, where the advertisers are creating all these kind of archetypal characters like the prudent housewife and the, you know, the, mm. the, the, 
the energetic businessmen and such. And, and, and all ads are tiny stories that you're meant to find yourself inside. Um, and mm. of course, since they have only a brief amount of time because of the way we set up advertising, although infomotions maybe are longer, right? Um, this is an infomotion for our Kickstarter, uh, that, that you have to do it in these very caricature forms. And so, you know, if mm. I want to get you to think you're inside this story, I need to get something that I think looks like a mirror, what you think you're going to look like. And it's that mirroring effect. And mm. Of course, when people don't want to drink Bud Light it's... anymore because they don't see themselves in the character that is now associated with Bud Light, <laughs> for example, yes. right? It all shatters because, you know, they're, they're sort of forcing mm. a, a, an identification and a participation in a story that people don't want to participate in. But, you know, advertising completely depends on it. And what's ironic about all of this is this advertising world exists powerfully in a context in which you don't have sacred advertising. You don't have icons anymore. You don't have the yes. story oh. st story that you can find yourself in as the mythology that gives your life meaning because you're actually participating in that sacred transcendent reality. Yeah, there's there there's there's no sacred cultus. So the second example was uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian mm. guy, giving a uh, giving his icon to the Roman with folk. no Jesus and in it. it had Virgin Virgin Mary and no Jesus. Where's the baby Jesus? No, Jesus is now this uh, black. It's like the black shot. It's like you know the uh, dark matter version of Jesus. <laughs> Where is he? He's gone. Well, not incarnate know, it's like, at all, whoa, just an we, outline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We just disincarnated the the uh, the baby Christ and the mother is there. Okay, well, it's the same thing. So disincarnate, this is the problem with the iconoclasm. Also, the idea that people are now trying to create icons that function as sacred icons and inject them into the cultural story and say, you have to follow this and you have to respect this because this thing is now sacred to us, even though it's not a sacred thing, it's connected to advertising and corporate branding. Right. And the two are getting confused. So I tried to put this into the piece by saying, uh, you know, Kirk's definition of the culture was that actually it's based on cultus, the Roman, the Latin word, which was, you know, how you're cultivating soil and also the altar that you're worshiping right. at, agriculture and God, soil. Uh, the soil and your God is ma is making your culture. We have a complete, I mean, not we, but the Western uh, thing called the civilization has forgotten which iconography is sacred and to be experienced and connected to in, in a in a way which is reverent and. Uh, to venerate those icons with due, uh, with, with due respect versus brands. Well, I think people and, do venerate brands. I mean, that's, that's the problem. No, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. That's yeah. what I mean. Like there, there's no, they don't understand the difference. So now if, 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 if there's this advertisement, which is created or a false icon, which is created and presented to everybody to be the new icon in that particular cultus. Okay. We're going to create a new prototype of what this, thing looks like like a housewife all right we're going to we're going to create a new prototype for what the the um the working man looks mm -hmm. like okay now we're going to create a new prototype for what a man is or a woman is right they're changing the iconography of the of the cultists 
well, who are you to do this? You are not God. You are an uh, your advertising agency. I mean, it, the, the problem being that people are not recognizing that what they're essentially being told to do is, is perform uh, the same gestures that we do in our churches in front of an icon to venerate it as the access point to the prototype that's in the mm -hmm. icon, right? That same behavior where we kiss it, it's not worshiping the particular, you know, wooden board. We're venerating the, the prototype inside that image. This same behavior is now being done in an environment where there's uh, a, a corporate uh, marketing team pushing a new prototype. And that's the, the main problem with what I was trying mm. to demonstrate that we're dealing with now in, the, in this poetry exercise to make a real distinction on what the cultus is that we're in uh, because we've been saturated in the branding and the advertising world for way too long that everyone around us is also saturated in branding and advertising and they don't have uh, the iconography that takes them away from that and gives them the proper understanding of the sacred and therefore a real cult not you know uh you know how everyone would say the word cult usually where it's, oh, it's just a cult it's not a religion right. well our cultus is the center of our focus the prototype icon of human life of the art of being alive as a human being is christ as the creator christ is the artist so that's our prototype in our icon how we're basing the cultus of our civilization has to revolve around that icon otherwise we don't have a prototype and if we don't have a prototype we end up with replacement prototypes which is what you were saying in terms of the advertising campaigns you know, right we're going to do a story now and show you what the ideal housewife looks like we're going to do a story now and show you what a real man looks mm -hmm. like which may or may not actually be a man we're losing our concept of prototype well i mean i think it's just it's been it's been it's parasitical on our worship in fact yeah. um so but so the the star wars which we still promise that we're going to give people and we, 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 we we've only got 10 more minutes <laughs> in our in our scheduled extent ex, whatever um maybe 15 um the movies are participating both in the commercial and in the storytelling and of course star wars what i remember okay so mm -hmm. you didn't see it so you don't belong in this narrative um <laughs> no that, i'm an outsider I, don't even you're not even heathen right you're not even part of the narrative and and of course this this Barbarian. this being the problem i still need to write the blog post about this it's like we need to like we're doing this story crafting in, in all these different ways right there's the you know the 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 prose articles and there's the the iconography and there's these the our conversations here and there's so many different ways this is one of the ones that I have in my mind is explaining to you all on a blog post why what we're doing is basically Augustine's catechesis, right? It's like, how do you get people to recognize themselves in the story? Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Now I forgot where I was going. Um, that that uh, if you can't get them inside the story, they're just they just don't know what you're talking about, right? And I and I appreciate what you said a mm -hmm. bit ago, saying the people that are getting mad at me in my in my professional field and and in the Catholic world is often because they they don't know the story yeah. that I'm 
operating within and so they they respond with um anxiety okay Okay, yes. so all of that bracket, yes, it's a huge problem. Where we're dealing is catechesis here, but the catechesis, as Augustine understands it, is showing you you're in what story you're in, and and if you can't mm -hmm. see it, you have no idea what people are talking about. It's a, you know, blindness, right? It's the outside of the story you haven't a clue. Inside of the story, you can see clearly, which is another. Well, maybe we need to do a whole thing on cult. Okay, anyway, the Star Wars problem that I saw this in 1977 in the theater when it first came out, right? I, I remember, I don't know how my mother knew about it or even that I would be interested in it, but it, it was this, my generation for sure, I was 11, 12, grew up with these three movies and therefore it is a, it is a touchstone and a kind of referent. And this mm -hmm. story that's commercially produced ramified out i mean the other thing i remember that um star wars before star wars there were no toys that went with movies mm. after star wars nothing but replicas and you know i want to make toys of our of our poem right and it's like i want to have the gemstone that we're using yeah. as our brand i want to have 3d print it's like we could manifest all of these characters and costumes and experiences although disney is apparently not doing as well as they'd like with that um into the primary world right you have the the, the sense yes. of that story becoming like the the opposite way sometimes you go into the story and imagine yourself in it it comes into our world and manifests itself there so star wars clearly did something super powerful and interesting mm -hmm. to realize that it's it part it's because it's retelling the fairy queen which wanted to achieve all of that to begin with right <laughs> it's like spencer wanted yeah. to make a new myth for the elizabethans to live inside of that included virtue and dragons and and so forth and Lucas succeeded where Spencer didn't, although what Lucas was doing was playing off of retellings that maybe he grew up with. We've since learned in the past day or so from the Dark Herald that in fact, Lucas basically just took other stories and, and, and I mean, it's like I have my next slide is a, uh, no, 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 I have that there's the fairy queen. No, no, not Star Wars. No, this one, that Indiana Jones is in fact Harry Steele, literally the same costume that Charlton Heston wears in this in this movie about the Incas. We will now go back to Star Wars. Okay, I'll go back to Star How <laughs> Star Wars is... Tomb writing and fairy tale. Tomb writing and fairy tale. So star we know Lucas does nothing but straight up lift characters, costumes, and plots from other stories, and he did it with the Fairy Queen, yeah. right? So I will now read a bit yeah. from Simon. All right. Spencer's poem is a long, elaborate, imaginative sequence of stories or books about the knights of fairyland and their struggles to learn holiness, temperance, chastity, friendship, justice, and courtesy. In the first and most frequently taught book of the Fairy Queen, the part that serves as the basis for Lucas's story, the topic is holiness, which is interesting, therefore, that, that Star Wars, in fact, becomes... Now I'm showing the, the Knight of Holiness. Star Wars, in fact, becomes a new religion for people now. And and I think it, it's it's because it's got this moral character for the, the, the structure of the story and the character, uh, the moral character. I'm gibbering. Star Wars works, in fact, because it is a, a kind of fairy story that it will create this sort of response, right? Spencer designed it that way. It works. Um, and, and, and the topic is holiness. 
the young and inexperienced Red Cross Knight takes up the cause of an innocent woman named Una, fights an evil magician named Archimago, requires the help of a perfect knight named Arthur, learns religious faith from an old hermit named Contemplation, and finally masters holiness, an accomplishment that allows him to destroy the hellish monster that has taken control of Una's land. Got all that? Right, so there's the Red Cross Knight is the main character, Una, the Archimago is the evil magician, the perfect knight named Arthur, um, he learns from a hermit, masters holiness, and defeats the dragon. Okay, everybody who knows Star Wars should be like shuddering in horror at the recognition. Okay, in Lucas's version of the story, the young and inexperienced Jedi Knight Luke Skywalker takes up the cause of an innocent woman named Princess Leia, fights an evil magician named Darth Vader, requires the help of a less-than-perfect fighter named Han Solo, learns religious faith from two old hermits named Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda, and finally masters the Force, an accomplishment that allows him to destroy the evil empire, the hellish monster that is taking control of Leia's Republic. It's literally the exact same story. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's not just here. It's not just Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces. I mean, th this is what's funny about Lucas. He admits that he used like Campbell a lot, I guess. And I don't know that he ever like openly said, I use Spencer. But we know from the way in which he definitely pulled Han, not Han Soto, Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones character literally from Harry Steele, Charlton Heston's character, although Harry Steele is, you know, kind of a rogue and, and, and a bit of a thief, which, oh, I guess Indiana mm -hmm. Jones is too. Um, it, it's yes. like, if I watched, I watched The Secret of the Incas this afternoon to prep for tonight, and yes, can confirm that the Dark Herald is exactly right. It's the same character with the same costume, with the mm -hmm. same supporting cast, with the same, you know, it's like Baloche is, you know, modeled on the the archaeologists they find excavating Machu Picchu and the Inca thing that you know the, the um uh Marcus Brody is modeled on Harry Steele's psyche the the airplane the the blah blah it's like every single point Lucas is definitely a magpie in the degree to which he's picking up these structures from the stories and so it's very very interesting that Star Wars given its vast cultural influence over the last generation mm -hmm. is in fact the fairy queen so when we say we're doing the fairy queen with dragons mm -hmm. or the star wars with dragons yeah you already know this story but but you didn't realize it um so it says almost mm -hmm. everything of importance that we see in star wars movies has its origin in the fairy queen from small details of weaponry and dress to large issues of chivalry and spirituality a dazzlingly bright light shield represents the special force of Christian spirituality in the Fairy Queen, just as a special effects lightsaber represents a similar spiritual force in Star Wars. Both are instrumental in the battle against evil. A powerful lion protects Una and represents the natural world in Spencer, just as a lion-like humanoid named Chewbacca protects Luke and Leia and represents the natural world in Lucas. Una wears white and is accompanied by a dwarf. Just as Leia wears white and is accompanied by two androids, C-3PO and R2-D2. And just as Una's dwarf gathers up weapons, gives directions and information when he can, functions as a, and functions as a servant, C-3PO and R2-D2 do the same. There are numerous figures of darkness and night and Spencer, all dressed in black and associated with hell. 
and Lucas, Darth Vader, and the evil emperor are dressed in black and associated with the Death Star. Red Cross wears the image of a cross at the beginning of his story, and Luke gains what appears to be a clerical collar near the end of his. It goes on and on. It's like it's the same story. I mean, with mm. some significant, you know, interesting differences between the Force and Christianity. But because Spencer is Protestant and therefore, you know, trying to destroy the Catholic Church, that the Force is so saying Lucas just changed Spencer's story, as some of these examples begin to suggest adapting the Elizabethan poem to contemporary American realities. The desirable religion in the fairy queen is Protestant Christianity, caught up in a battle, mm. with a, caught up in battle with a depraved Roman Catholicism. Um, yeah. uh, Spencer was partisan in the religious struggles of his time. The desirable religion in Star Wars is the non-sectarian force, a generalized inner spirituality that echoes Eastern mysticism. Arthur is the perfect British knight in the mm. fairy queen, a symbol of the might that will be England, straight, good, and sober. Han Solo is a flawed and fallen fighter who must be redeemed in Star Wars, a symbol of particularly American wisecracking daredevil, and, and so forth. Right, but it's like the, the 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 adjustments are not nearly so significant as the fact that it's the same story. <laughs> mm. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking that it's. Uh... It makes sense why suddenly there is an explosion of merchandise around this film. Mm. The Force. <laughs> the Force. Right. Yeah. It's, it's ex this explosion of iconography of, of fairy bursting mm -hmm. into reality. It's like it's it's the, the Lucas managed to activate everything that Spencer had hoped for. And and the thing is, in the Elizabethan period, we've seen that people started playing out, you know, they're playing out the Arthurian stories, they're having pageants and so forth like that. It's like, insofar as people now go to conventions and costume and play out all of these characters, they are literally doing exactly what the Elizabethans were doing. It's like, Star Wars and Ren Fairs are the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guys... <laughs> It's star. It's our our story is Star with It's like it's sci fi fantasy. It's the, I mean they're the same thing. And the, we I have a at at, at BasedCon, I did a talk a couple of years ago where I was talking about the Ring and how it's both sci fi and fantasy. It's like the origin. Mm. It's like as we said with the the um the economic and and artistic. All of these twinnings, yes. these broken twins, are are present here. And one is sci fi and fantasy. They're not different. They're actually the same story. Mystic Tick. Yep. Mystic Tech. Mystic Tick, yep. Yeah. Uh, prayer and work being united suddenly. It's very cool. It's very cool. It's very cool. Yeah. Quite, quite cool. Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, I'm just, I'm wondering now, okay? So we have this explosion of uh, dress-ups people wanting to enter into Star Wars which is based on the, the Fairy Queen what has the culture done in re-entering Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen in a sci-fi aesthetic mm -hmm. you know this is uh a kind of reboot of uh, Protestant civilization, 
somehow, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's uh, upgraded and uh, I'm wondering how that has affected everybody in in the sense of the the power versus uh, prototype that everyone has been referring to the force for so many years. Forces are impersonal and they can be wielded. So, like, I know enough about Star Wars to, <laughs> to know that's like, see, even you know it when you can't force. stay awake you in the movies. Of, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like, oh, how hard I've tried to stay away from all of this stuff. Um, and even then, you can't. You get it's it's sort of flung at you. But you know, this impersonal force versus personal logos, incarnate mm. logos. You know, so it's like the whole culture's been re, re it's like rehitched to this Spencerian horse, which was iconoclastic and, you know, wanted to uh, split the monastic. Now, that that is a very interesting phenomenon. Well, it's particularly because... interesting the Jedi are a kind of monastic order. They're sort of fighting monks, right, that they have to... I do know. I do know mm. this much about the later the later lore, right? That they develop that they're. I mean, some of them are sort of oblates, like right. They're trained from birth, as it were, and they are. They have spiritual discipline. I did like this in the the. Um, I think it's in the Empire Strikes Back. I mean, when when Luke does his proper training, it's very mystical, and you know, I, I I'm clearly in for, in it for the monk the monks. Um, but the yeah the, there's no there the the force is not incarnate it seems to be what is it like a manichaean thing or like almost like zoroastrianism you know it's like the good and evil balance mm-hmm. thing it's not an it's not a person well it's more taoist and they i can... think it's it's like it's 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 yeah. eastern so it's it's a balance of forces rather than you're fighting the evil and that's the dragon Right. And, the, and so, mm-hmm. I mean, this is uh, here in the picture I have up now is, is the, um, the, 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 the false duessa, right? So she, he, she is the representation in the poem of the church, the Catholic church. And here she is mm-hmm. enthroned and she's got her dragon. She's quite magnificent, has a, looks like an African, a black skinned person holding her peacock feathered fan. To show you how, mm-hmm. <laughs> whose whose side are we on by this point? Um, but but then she is she in, in in Spencer's story is the is and that I know enough from when I listened to the whole poem that she keeps showing up regularly. The false duessa is is a regular feature, and in the Star Wars, that feeling of the evil presence is. I mean, it's curious to find out. It's actually it's like echoing the presence of Catholicism as its power, story power, mm. which is then you know balanced by you know the the image that we indeed the the story of the dragon killing in Spencer is one of the great dragon battles in any literature ever. Right, it's it goes on for mm. stanzas and stanzas. The dragon is massive. There's three great engagements. It's it's a true dragon battle. If you have any image in your head 
of a massive dragon battle. Yeah. It's from Spencer ultimately because the Beowulf battle is it's significant, but it's not like this one. And the the, mm. the Saint George legends that Spencer is drawing on in order for the Red Cross Knight to fight the dragon they're not this elaborate. So Spencer is the source of all great dragon battle narratives in English. I think in any language, I think he really, he really like masters this moment, this narrative moment. And we did, we did practice our scansion when we were trying to learn his stanza forms on the dragon, the dragon episode. And they're fun to read. <laughs> we, we should do an entire episode simply reading dragon, the dragon battle for you. The blood coming mm -hmm. out. <laughs> It's almost like a Tarantino scene oh, really, yeah. when you read it. <laughs> yes. How much blood can come out of this thing? Oh, there's more. Um, yeah. And the knight keeps uh, getting, you know, cast down and then he has to go be, you know, tended by Una and he recovers and he goes back into battle. And yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely up there with, with um, fight scenes. Any, yeah. any, like, yeah. yeah, the superhero fight scenes you've ever read, they're all Spencer, basically. I all yeah, all movie fight scenes of the 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 hero gets overcome by the you know tremendous monster and you know has to go and have the the, the quiet scene at the night and then you have the the campfire scene where they meditate on the meaning of life and then go back and battle again. That's Spencer. He did it. He he invented this structure. <laughs> yes. So that's the. Well, at least he, I know, and he's the oldest one I know. Maybe there, I know, the thing is, I think he really did invent it. I think that's his great genius, that he really did the dragon battle. Which mm. is then what captured everybody's imagination, particularly in the 19th century, when, for example, these drawings are done, or etchings or whatever they are, woodcuts, I'm not sure. I mean, it's like we get a lot of illustrated versions of the battle with the dragon from the 19th century, mm -hmm. which makes sense then that Lucas would be interested in it as a story. Maybe he had a book of Spencer growing up or something, and that would that would anchor him in this. I'm not I'm not sure there were movies of it before before Star Wars. Now that we found out Harry Steele is uh, Indiana Jones is actually Harry Steele, maybe we find it. it. Could be a Charlton Heston movie I haven't seen before. <laughs> we're gonna stop binging Charlton Heston films. I'm now. still on Johnny Depp. Well, I still we're gonna have to do a Johnny Depp episode too. We're promising you guys a Definitely. lot. You realize we Definitely. have not exhausted our material because the the the, the story world keeps it keeps it's it showing itself to us. Dragon revelation mm. of the dragon over and over and over again. It's out there. Yeah. It is. It is hoarding things. <laughs> we will capture oh. the gold of the dragon and and share it with you in story form. Yes. yes yes but now we should let you go to so, sleep right <laughs> all right this is our story this is our dragon i mean you may have seen it because we keep plastering it all over our social media <laughs> last year oh is it is this, this the thing is, this is the uh, magnificent not the jewel i started with that one this is the gate okay with our 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 oh, own dragon nice. slayer facing the gate which he's about to enter into so that he will enter into the city and of course our dragon admiring itself as dragons tend to do um and there is in fact as good good cover art um should be the entirety of the story contained in this one image we promise 
mm-hmm. meditate on this on, yes. the, on on this 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 mystery um and we hope we can we hope we can you know unravel it all for you it 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 keeps showing the coils of the dragon they 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 are vast and and surprising even to us mhm yeah <laughs> you think that's enticed them enough to help with uh, with I our hope Kickstarter. So. Ooh, let's 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 check I let's check so. in on our Kickstarter so that we can. If they want to, if they want to see, if they want to see the snake shed its skin until it's you know reached its final form, we need the gold. We have at the moment. We are within four hundred and ninety dollars of our primary goal. Two days in, we are re rock. You guys rock. Look at this. Look at this. And um, those of you who, who watch us in our videos recognize that the Mosaic Arc is your deep backstory of the poem that we've been writing and that you will therefore understand all of this at levels that only those who watch the Mosaic Arc will really get. So you're already you're already in the secret. You're already in the story. Um, we have absolutely brilliant reward tiers although what's interesting is most people are are, are subscribing mainly for the books <laughs> mm. which is is actually encouraging right it's like we had all these goodies out there with yeah. cards and oh you know the invitation if, if you and a friend if you donate together if you like to do it that way can come on the mosaic arc and get lost with us for an episode um we also have a very special donor tier um, that you can have yourself drawn into one of the the the, the crowd scenes, right? The mage will cast you into mm-hmm. the the cat. You'll be in the cast, and we have had one taker on this on this option, and so therefore one of you is going to be in the story. How cool is that, right? It's like, it's just like a medieval manuscript that you get yourself drawn into the story that you have yourself been patron to. I'm I love it. I'm so excited. <laughs> I don't know who this person is, but we'll make you look very beautiful. Yes, we prob- <laughs> we've instructed our artists that, that the beauty must be 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 brought forth in in, in this this particular yes. option. Um, but but uh, we we're really grateful that those of you who are supporting us are supporting, in fact, the full set of books. Right, it's going to be in in five acts. We finished writing Act One, and we are getting the pictures drawn right now of of that act, so that we'll be able to send you know send you that book. Hopefully in in the in the next few months, which we get all the layout and beautiful beautiful structure of everything down, um, but that people are actually subscribing to do the whole series, so that's brilliant. We have a lot of work cut out for us, and we know where we're going. We have a plot, we have an arc, we have characters. It's happening, I and the symbol so. the symbolism <laughs> yeah. is just like shatteringly showing itself to us constantly. You have no idea how much fun this is mm-hmm. to write, but we really hope you enjoy reading it because. It's the story that we're all in and we are trying to share with you the joy that we have with that story, but also the horror of what it's been like in the particular manifestation of it, which is what Kiltz was showing in the, in the, in in thinking about how we started this in the midst of the lockdowns and the mandates and the COVID and the virus and the, the horror and the terror of the dragon that was capturing the whole world with that particular narrative. Yeah. Yeah. where the attention flows the power goes that's a really good catchphrase maybe we can use that in our marketing (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, uh, we have yeah. we have we've we've had Casey and and Mel um, participate. Draco Chemicus is the deconstructed fairy queen, says Casey. Yes, um, Satan would love to actually disincarnate Christ. I, th- I think she was thinking about there with the Zelensky. All oh, the Zelensky thing mm. um, tells all that all one all that is needed to know about anyone who would do that to an icon. Indeed, um, yeah. the force of materialism, even its greatest trick, is telekinesis. Manipulating material matter. Mm. We always manipulate matter. I do it right now. Look, I'm waving my hand. <laughs> however, however, I did that. Right? You do it. You do it when you speak because sound waves need matter to bounce. They go clack, 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 right. clack. It's not like light, which doesn't need a um, physical thing. You need, to, yeah. You're manipulating matter with your voice box all the time it's very trippy all, all we're, we're 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 in we do the trippy here the draco chemisicus <laughs> drink the spice yes yes okay yeah. well we could we as we have demonstrated we could go on and on and on but i think that that's enough for them to to chew on and meditate on this week don't you think i think so yeah i should probably go and watch star wars <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Maybe you watch, you'll be disappointed. It'd be like me watching the Harry Steele, the secrets of the Incas tonight going, I've seen this. How dare he? Mm. <laughs> I'll report uh, back. <laughs> I loved Star Wars 1977 through Empire Strikes Back. The, the, uh, the, the, um, the Return of the Jedi, not so much. I was never enamored of the Ewoks. However... People get quite, 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 you know, fraught when you attack their stories. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. I have, I, have, I have no idea. Fine. Why would Why would they be upset if we challenged their stories? We could it be? All right. Thank you for joining us. Good night.